I once interviewed a, a woman for the for my book who tried to get um, the charges. What was this procedure going to cost her or or overall? But I think what was she going to have to pay? And they told her this was many years ago now. But the insurance company told her that was proprietary information and they couldn't share it with her. She's going to pay the bill. They won't share the information. So yes, I think the the attitudinal barriers are firmly entrenched with a lot of providers and insurers as well. As you know, if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast at Point Health, we are focused on making healthcare easy to find, easy to understand, and easier to afford. As we launched Point Health, we wanted to share what we learned during the process of building the company, so we started this podcast where we are lucky enough to talk with some of the best minds in healthcare and technology to get their advice on how we can make the biggest difference. Today, I am here with my colleague Hayden Mars, our Director of Operations, and we are very excited to be joined by Deb Gordon, an Aspen Institute Health Innovators Fellow and author of the Healthcare Consumers Manifesto. So thanks for joining us, Deb. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you. Yeah, we're excited. I think this is going to be a fun one. Uh, we can get into the weeds on consumerism. Um, I'll just do a little bio <laughs> uh, on Deb, and then we'll jump right in. So Deb is a seasoned healthcare executive who has held a variety of roles. I'm sure we'll talk about some of those, including spending nearly a decade leading marketing for a health plan that served low and moderate income Massachusetts residents. Deb was a 2013 Eisenhower Fellow when she traveled to Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore to explore the role of consumers in high-performing health systems, another really interesting topic we'll get into. Uh, in 2017, after the acquisition of a health technology turnaround she led, Deb became a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Mosavar Ramani Center for Business and Government, where she conducted extensive research into healthcare consumerism in search of consumer-driven solutions to American healthcare woes, which spawned her book, the Healthcare Consumers Manifesto. So um, very much aligned, I think, with, with our views on things and, and past episodes of the podcast. So this should be fun. So why don't we just start at the beginning like we like to do? I know you received your Bachelor of Arts in Biomedical Ethics from Brown. Um, what inspired you to study biomedical ethics? And, you know, what did you plan to do with that? What, what, what did you think coming out of college, you know, young Deb, that you were going to do with your career? Uh, yeah, well, the first, on, most the honest answer is I had no idea um, I don't know if you know, but Brown has an open curriculum, so there are no requirements. You can take whatever interests you, whatever you want. And I honestly just followed my interests. And it started with a course. Uh, it was actually an anthropology course called Culture and Health, where I was introduced to the, this idea that health and wellness and disease are cultural constructs, not, you know, not not only are they based on you know scientific facts, but where in the world you live and how you're raised actually influences how you even conceive of health and wellness and disease. And I was sort of hooked on this this healthcare space from that point on. Um, and you know, uh, bioethics was a very multidisciplinary concentration where I could look at you know philosophy and to really grapple with public policy issues and the the like the thorniest parts of of healthcare, uh, and you know when I on my way out of Brown, I realized that that's a there's a whole field where you can do that. You know, and I found public health, and that's that's what I I stepped out of Brown and went into a public health consulting and research role. Wow, but that's I had no idea really cool. going in. Yeah, I actually I did not know that about Brown. Um, when 
well, I went to Baylor and we had a thing called the, um, it was like Baylor interdisciplinary core. And it was exactly like that, but you, it was basically the honor students and they could literally pick any class they wanted. They built their own major. I, I, yeah, it was a really cool way to do it. I, well, very, very fascinating. Yeah. That is really interesting. I'm just laughing, thinking about what my 18 year old self would have <laughs> chosen to study if I had complete freedom and probably would have nothing to do with healthcare at this point. Who knows? Maybe it would. Uh, but yeah, that's really, really fascinating. So I, I'm curious kind of, so you did your bachelor in biomedical ethics and then kind of went into public health. And then what was your journey? Like, how did you kind of end up in the, you know, healthcare executive world, you know, being more focused on um, consumer driven habits than the healthcare industry? Yeah, I, um, so it's interesting. So, at, well, it's interesting to me um, that when I worked in public health, I I became I found myself even more interested in management and leadership than in public health per se. So I, I was interested in the substance of what we were working on. I worked on healthcare for the homeless and primary care capacity building, and I worked on a lot of really cool and really important efforts. But I found my passion was really for like, how does this company run and who's effective and why? And so that led me to business school and business school led me to management roles and leadership roles. And um, and that's how I, you know, I kind of wound my way to a role as director of marketing, director of basically consumer marketing for a Medicaid health plan in Massachusetts. And, you know, it's definitely, I, it was the right role for me. As, and I was there at the right time uh, when Massachusetts went through healthcare reform and which, you know, under, it's sort of the under uh, pinnings of the ACA. And, you know, we, we had explosive growth and membership and, you know, the complexity of our business. And I was there with my MBA and my sort of private sector experience kind of poised to, uh, you know, grow with the company as the opportunities presented. So that's sort of how how it all happened. I, I like to be in charge of stuff, I guess, and to really <laughs> think about like, how are we doing things? Not just what are we doing, but how else could we do them and could we do them better? Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love that. Love that. That's kind of how you found your, your niche and what you're really good at. So kind of off of that, you know, obviously you have a lot of really awesome experience. I've gotten to travel a lot. What kind of led to you being, okay, I need to write a book on, you know, the American healthcare system and how we are great consumers, but don't necessarily shop for healthcare. Yeah. And you asked part, part of, I think your last question, I'm not sure I really answered, which is sort of not just how did I get the, take on those roles, executive roles, but why consumers and why healthcare consumers? And I will say it's, my my interest in consumerism and consumers really stems from my very first project at the public health firm that I worked at right out of college, um, where I was assigned to a project that was doing, it was a focus group study of older, lower income women about their attitudes and behaviors towards breast and cervical cancer screening. And I was you know, 21 years old, I knew nothing, but I was assigned a lot of work to, you know, like do the logistics, do this, do that. And I was also trained in focus group moderation. And I also got the great joy of transcribing the recordings from this focus group study. And really that is not joyful if anyone's done it, it's really tedious, <laughs> but yeah. 
I got to immerse myself um, in these consumer insights. And I wrote the report. I got to do a lot of that sort of end-to-end. What is the question? And you know, how do you ask and answer the question of consumers? And then what do you what do you what can you glean from what people tell you about their not just what they do, but you know, why do they do things and why do they feel certain ways? And that really hooked me on consumers. You know, like we're all consumers, obviously, but the idea that people get to do their their spend their work lives thinking about and listening to what drives individuals. Uh, mindsets and decision making that that just I mean I can't ever get enough of that and that's sort of propelled me uh, throughout my career and that's why I was in marketing and um, ultimately that's why I wrote the book you know I felt like I was around a lot of experts you know I was pretty knowledgeable about the healthcare field I'm using air quotes so your listeners can't see me um, <laughs> And, you know, there's a lot of people in healthcare who think things should work a certain way. And I agree, they should work a certain way. But in fact, when you're dealing with people, real people and individuals, things don't always work the way they're supposed to. So, you know, I worked with someone who really, really believed that we should always go to our primary care provider first and they should really gatekeep. And, you know, why would anyone do anything otherwise and i'm like well i can't even get to my primary care doctor because she's only open for appointments from i'm making it up 10 15 to 2 p.m on tuesday and i work full-time you know at the time i was kind of thinking like yeah in theory that works but in reality the experience of real people doesn't always match and there's there are reasons for what people do we just need to understand more kind of on the ground what what are the factors that drive people's behavior? Um, And so I felt like something was missing from the healthcare uh, policy and management discussions I was in, which is really what matters to consumers. And I started to see that individuals at all, kind of of all walks of life were really confused by the healthcare system and really stressed out about um, you know, I think the cost, even for people with, you know, plenty of resources, I think just the uncertainty of what are things going to cost me and what, what do I need to do here? I have no idea. Um, that sort of level of confusion and feeling overwhelmed seems to be pretty universal amongst consumers. And I wanted to expose that. Like, why is that? Why can't we do better for individuals? Why aren't we listening to that as an industry? and designing for people's real experiences instead of the theoretical sort of how it should work. Cause it's not working that way. Yeah, absolutely. So going from kind of wanting to really listen to consumers understand, you know, how they interact with healthcare, what really fits their needs, um, spending time doing research on that. So kind of based off of everything that you found, like, why do you think that as Americans, we don't shop for care or at least aren't very good at doing that? Yeah, because we shop for everything else. We're masterful shoppers at anything we put our minds to. Um, and I think, you know, the short answer is that I, I think there are a few factors. The, the short answer is the system is not set up for consumers to shop. It's, 
it is it has grown up around institutions, around hospitals and providers, employers and insurers. And, you know, the roots of our system, at least the modern day, the modern day version of our system really did not put the consumer at the center and the consumer was not paying most of the bill the consumer was not really the customer. So, so the system grew up around those entities that were really paying. So that's one, it's not designed for us to shop. Um, and so those, I would call structural barriers. You know, we don't publish prices because who, why would we Pub prices are a, fa a function of a negotiated rate between, you know, an insurer and an employer or a provider and an, and a insurer. And so there's no sort of role for the consumer in that equation. That's, you know, how it was for many decades, I think. Um, just as one kind of obvious example of a structural barrier to consumerism. But then I also think we are to blame, not to blame the victim, but, you know, we as consumers, as Americans, like we definitely know how to shop. We know what to do when we're spending our own money in healthcare. I think we haven't until very much more recently recognized that the money we spend in healthcare, the money spent in healthcare on our behalf is actually our money. It's now literally our money coming out of our pockets, but it's also our taxes. It's also um, our compensation sort of in lieu of wages, we're getting health benefits if, if for those of us who get our insurance through an employer. So, so there's been a mindset shift or an attitudinal block that that leaves consumers not confused, but just sort of not really aware, uh, not really thinking of healthcare spending as our money. Um, and then I think so. So it's sort of structural and individual barriers to consumerism. And then I think, you know, the, the biggest uh, discussion I have with, let's say, economists is that, you know, is that healthcare is not like another goods, the other goods and services. You can't just shop for healthcare. That's crazy. You know, I, they, they're more polite than that, but that's essentially what they're saying. Like these are not just, you know, cereal boxes or coats or you know sweaters. These these are life and death, you know, services. The the stakes are so high. Uh, we as consumers don't know enough to make the decisions for ourselves because we're not, most of us are not medically trained, right? And so I think there are some legitimate, um, you know, information asymmetry, power dynamics, um, sort of set of features of healthcare decisions and healthcare purchasing that are, are not well suited to consumerism. When you, when you think you're having a heart attack, like go to the emergency room, mm -hmm. you know, that that's not a time to say like, what's the cheapest hospital to go to? <laughs> However, what I did find in my research is that consumers do factor financial decisions, even in what we would consider acute or Im even emergent situations. And so what I really should have said at the outset of this answer is Americans do try to shop for, for healthcare, you know, often we do try and we're kind of blocked by these systemic barriers. Um, but we don't always because we have this, these personal attitudinal barriers as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, gosh, just this morning, I was chatting with one of our clients where we try to help their members who um, do go about presenting themselves as cash pay. Um, when they have larger procedures, we try to help them get itemized statements so that they can see, you know, all the different charges, how it's being coded. And we've been getting so much pushback from providers. And we've even had providers say, oh, well, your cash pay, we don't do itemized statements for cash pay patients. And it's like, okay, well, so you want us to give you money. You don't want us, you don't want to tell me, you know, what I'm paying for. And so it's interesting, even as we've been, you know, working with members to try and help them shop and have that more of a consumer, let's weigh our options mindset. Yeah, we're we're hitting those barriers of there's just still those, you know, historical systems in place that really make it hard for for them to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I once I once interviewed a, a woman for the for my book who tried to get um, the charges. What was this procedure going to cost her or or overall? But I think what was she going to have to pay? And they told her this was many years ago now. But the insurance company told her that was proprietary information and they couldn't share it with her. She's going to pay the bill. They She's won't the share the information. So. Yes, I think the the attitudinal barriers are firmly entrenched with a lot of providers and insurers as well. Yeah, that's I get so fed up with the system uh, when we have these conversations. And you know, Hayden knows it from being an advocate in the past, and we all know it as patients. And my my dad's a doctor, so I've been involved in this stuff. It's just it's just crazy. Um, you you really set us up well too with your your in there. You said that Americans do want to shop, but they're met with barriers. Um, you know, that's something that we're working on at Point Health, obviously, uh, and, and we're really trying to make that information more more available, uh, as I said earlier, about making it easier to find, understand, and afford healthcare. I wanted to ask you about some of the recent changes that have happened around transparency, some some that have complied and some haven't, as we know, with hospitals. Um, and, and obviously, there's more uh, changes coming in relation to payers. Um, and, and group health plans, you know, sharing their, their, their pricing and negotiated rates. But what do you think about that? How do you see that um, playing a role? Do you think it will, will, will make a difference? Um, is it just another attempt that, that, that's going to go by the wayside? What, what are your thoughts on, on that idea? You know, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, price transparency, I would call it necessary, but not sufficient. So we must expose prices to consumers. Um, if, if only for the just such obvious reason that consumers are now paying the bill mm -hmm. until, you know, most of us have a high deductible plan or many of us are cash pay. Um, so you the story Hayden told, you know, that's that's just not OK. You can't not itemize a bill. You can't not expose the pricing to the to the payer, air quotes, payer, you know, when the payer is the consumer. So that that's. One, it's absolutely required. I don't think, I don't think the recent changes and the forthcoming changes will be enough on their own, uh, because, you know, I actually, I know we're going to talk about my travels, uh, or we may have a chance <laughs> yeah. to talk about my travels overseas. But you know, before I headed out on on my Eisenhower Fellowship journey, I actually thought, you know, we're about to. You know, at the time we were about to have all these all these Americans buy their own health insurance on on these new exchanges on the marketplace, and to me we were we were 
all of a sudden we're going to be paying the bill and we're going to demand to know what it, things cost. And we, when we find out what things cost, we're going to just automatically shop around and become savvy consumers. And, you know, when I went to the Kennedy School, when I, I applied, you know, I had to write a proposal to go to the Kennedy School to do the research I did for my book. And I thought like, oh, let's see, let's dust this off and see, you know, how, what great progress have we made? And I went back into the literature, you know, a bunch of economists had been studying consumer behavior uh, and no one was using price transparency tools or, you know, where's, where price information was available. It wasn't necessarily spawning comparison shopping. It might, people might've been using it to know what their specific costs were going to be. Um, but they weren't shopping around. And so to me, what all that says is like, yes, we need it. And we can't assume that exposing prices, even if it's done well, which is obviously it's not always being done well, but even if it's done well, uh, it's not alone going to create shoppers. In, in fact, I, I personally think, and I wrote a chapter about this. I interviewed a cost accountant, a healthcare cost accountant, I, I really, you know, geeked out over healthcare cost accounting. But, you know, if you expose, if you create transparency and you expose or pull back the curtains on something that is such a mess, and then you're like, huh, why aren't people using that? Or why isn't that changing behavior? Like, actually, if you've ever seen under the hood of, you know, what builds to a healthcare price or a hospital's price, list um i mean you, you wouldn't be surprised that it doesn't work automatically that that what's underneath needs to be cleaned up simplified clarified um not only exposed if that makes sense no it does actually you made you rung a bell for me in the program i did um in healthcare transformation we talked about time-driven activity based to, uh, cost accounting versus the traditional method that hospitals use which really makes no sense and like the net net that I remember from that class was hospitals don't actually know their costs. Like how, exactly. You and how can you That's set a, exactly yeah, right. like how can you set a price and there's a difference in price and cost. Like those are two different things. How can you set a price for a procedure when you don't even know what it costs you? I mean, amen brother. That's all I can say. I, that's exactly what I think you've summed up price transparency yeah. and why it has not yet achieved you know, what we all, I think, hoped it would achieve. It's not enough on its own. There's yeah. something beneath it that needs to be done. Well, and we even had a CFO of a, of a hospital uh, system in our class. He was one of, my, one of my classmates. And so it was really interesting to hear kind of his take on some of this stuff. Um, and, you know, it's just, yeah, pe people don't like the current system, but they're not willing to change. It's, you know, it's hard. It's such an entrenched, entrenched system. Here's my hope. I'm go, I'll go off script. I hope that the prices get out there and we can shame hospitals a little bit and, and into saying, wait a minute, why? And, and this is happening a little bit. Why is this group charged $70,000 for that procedure? And why is this group charged seven? And that's a real example. Like I saw that example, depending on the group paying. Um, and and, and I, I hope that as, as this happens more and more, the information is out there, people will be shamed a bit into into seeing what's going on and then obviously we hope as a as a company we're trying to make this available to consumers so that the groups that are transparent will be rewarded you know that we, we can send our members to them first 
Um, can I just, sorry to interrupt. Can no, I, no, go. May I add something to that? So I just heard a story yesterday about a woman whose daughter had leukemia. So they spent a lot of time, I think she's fine now. This was many years ago or several years ago. Um, but they spent a lot of time in the hospital and the woman, the mom looked at the bill at some point and realized that a, uh, I think it was Tylenol, a single Tylenol was the charge for that was $15. So the mom started bringing her own Tylenol and the hospital made her sign a release, you know, that they weren't liable for anything that happened with her own home, you know, brought in um, her, her brown bag Tylenol. And I said to the person who told me the story, like, that was the response. <laughs> like, the response was like, let's manage our liability, yeah. not let's look at why it's the Tylenol pill 15 bucks. Yeah, you don't know? ask so the question. I <laughs> hope that shame works, but I think we have a ways to go yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. Or, or history hasn't shown that shame works yeah, 100% yeah. of the time. No, you're totally right. And there, there, and there's no one one solution, right? These are all, you know, ideally these things can all make a difference. So I do want to ask too about the opposite side. So you mentioned healthcare economists earlier. We're actually going to be interviewing one soon on this podcast. Um, have you heard the Danish concrete argument about like price transparency and how it's actually going to lead to higher costs once people know rates? Mm -hmm. I'm just curious what you would say to maybe someone who who has that approach of, um, yeah, this is going to maybe even raise rates versus lower them. Yeah, it's interesting. I've definitely heard this argument that uh, price transparency will lead to tacit collusion yeah. Um, which basically means once I see you, you know, I'm hospital A, you're hospital B, I see that your rates are higher. I will observe your rates from afar. We won't overtly collude, but I will just pay attention to what your rates are and I'll raise mine to meet yours because somebody's paying you. So I may as well get in on that game. Um, and then we'll never lower them because we'll, we'll be set at this, you know, we'll be locked in at this higher price. And I, I understand that argument and like anything's possible. Of course that could happen. Uh, that may, that may well happen. Um, you know, because first of all, a lot of providers don't want to compete on price and frankly, they yeah. shouldn't like, yeah. that's not very good business for, you know, for their margins. Um, and consumers don't really want to feel like they're getting discount again with my air quotes. Yeah discount healthcare. It's kind of <laughs> no. like bargain sushi, day old sushi. No, thank you. Um, on the other hand, you know, that, that could happen. I think that's legitimate, but it won't last because we are a nation of innovators and entrepreneurs and disruptors. And yeah. so if, if we see stasis for too long, uh, you know, the, let's just stick with the $15 Tylenol, like, Hospital C, you know, you're, I'm A, you're B. Hospital C might say, wait a minute, I can compete. I can, I can charge a, a buck for my Tylenol yeah. and, you know, offer something and sort of compete with on a, on a different, uh, again, I, I'm not sure many want to compete on price. Some will, um, and some will come up with all new ways of competing. And so I think that, yes, that could happen. The sort of transparency could lead to higher prices for a time. But so long as we have an entrepreneurial culture in this country, which I think is part of our DNA, 
I don't think it will last. So kind of along those lines of going back to, even though, you know, we've got the new transparency legislation where we're taking some baby steps in the right direction, but still not full confidence there on whether consumers will really take advantage of that. I'm curious, do you think that part of that too could be the lack of quality and outcomes data on, you know, different hospitals and services? I know that's kind of something we've been seeing is, you know, one person's great experience might differ from another person's great experience. And then how do you trust that? And there's not as much information out there. I think that's part of it that um, what people really some people do shop on price or make decisions on price, but many people make decisions on value or, you know, it's, it depends on your, you know, your persona, your shopper persona. Uh, it depends on how much resource you have and what, what options you have. I think a lot of people want to base their healthcare decisions on value, which is a function of both, I think, price and quality or price and outcomes. Um, I, also think that quality reporting and quality data is extremely difficult and problematic and it's sort of like the aha that nobody knows what their services cost it's very hard to prove how good you know the services are um, and so we use a lot of proxy measures that aren't super helpful and they're definitely not easy for a consumer to pick up um, you know, and, you know, like, a, I'm trying to think of a, like a Yelp review. Yes, we have Yelp reviews, but there are just so many factors that go into evaluating quality in healthcare, you know, compared to a restaurant or a hotel, even a hotel. I always look like, why is the one star a one star? Well, if it's, you know, because parking was really expensive and I'm not bringing a car, I don't care. Was the room clean? That's what I care about. You know, so even the more simple categories you need to dig behind those uh let's call them star ratings um so so i think that's part of it i also think that it, it there is a more fundamental barrier than just we are not providing enough data or the right data it's that i don't think consumers fully understand or feel agency you know i don't think they fully understand that they can make a choice and they can use their voice and they can um, uh, sort of, you know, I again, want to use air quotes because I don't mean, I want to say demand, but I mean demand in a supply and demand sort of way, like that consumers, I don't think really feel like they are in a position to demand the kind of care they need and want, either because they don't know what that looks like or they don't know how to judge it or because they literally don't have a choice because they live in a area I can hit, I can throw a rock and hit a healthcare provider in, in Boston, you know, a top tier hospital. Yeah. I can't throw a rock that far, but you know, the, the point is we're, we're, yeah. we're flush with, you know, very high quality healthcare providers in my area. But I've talked to lots of folks around the country who live in more remote, more suburban, more rural areas. Uh, like the doctors are the doctors, the hospital is the hospital and, you get what you get. And so, so I think the idea that you can use data to inform really savvy decision-making, it's not a hundred percent real for every consumer or every American. 
That's a really good point, actually. Um, because I think you know we we're all in Austin, and and we've got some some pretty great options in our area as well. And um, it's not always the case. I'm sure you've read Marty McCary's work. Um, we, we're big fans of, of of what he's done. And in his book, he talks about um rural New Mexico, and there's a there's a city there, a town, and he talks about how basically everyone in that that town. Uh, was in debt collections with the hospital because everyone who had gone to the hospital mm-hmm. couldn't afford to pay the price. As you said, high deductible, you're essentially uninsured because you don't have enough money to cover the deductible. So what's the point in having insurance at that point? And they, they all ended up in debt collections with the hospital. And it's just, they literally had no other option. Like if their kid got sick, you can't drive two hours to go to the hosp- a different hospital. So yeah, I, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of um, pieces to this that we can't, we can't fix all of them, you know, in this, in this piece. But I did, I wanted to go and drill in a little bit into somewhat related, but your travels, you know, as, as just like in the U S right. It's different in New Mexico than it is in Boston. Um, what was it like for you when you traveled to Australia New Zealand and Singapore kind of exploring those systems and seeing how consumers, you know, shop there or don't I just, I just loved to, would love to hear a little bit about what that was like and what you learned. Yeah. Um, what a great opportunity it was to be honest. Um, I couldn't believe I got to do that. Um, <laughs> But for context, I traveled in 2013, I traveled to Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. And, and back then, way back then, there was still uh, a sense, there was still sort of rhetoric in the public domain that America, the United States, has the best healthcare in the world. And some of us on the inside knew yeah. how flawed that was, how inequitably distributed it is. Um, how uneven the quality and the pricing can be. But there was still that aura of, you know, we're, we're number one in everything, including healthcare. And so I purposely wanted to go to places that have objectively high quality or high caliber healthcare systems. I did not go anywhere, although New Zealand is maybe slightly an exception. I purposely chose very uh, sort of capitalistic, um, you know, societies with systems that have a hearty dose of private sector um, players, for lack of a better word. I didn't go to yeah. Sweden. You know, yeah. Sweden's amazing. <laughs> but I knew if I came back and said, Sweden is amazing, I would hear socialism, which yep. is not accurate. But, yeah. you know, um, and I didn't want that. I didn't want to end the conversation before it would even begin. So so I purposely chose these countries. Um they each in a different way, particularly Australia and Singapore, uh, have a vital role for consumers. So in Australia, just to quickly summarize, half the country, that everyone has a basic, they call it Medicare, not unlike our Medicare, but everyone has basic health insurance coverage and half the population buys into private insurance to sort of supplement or augment the public system. And in Singapore, it's different. Um, it's less insurance based and it's more, um, you know, a third of healthcare spending in Singapore comes out of, out of pocket and another third comes out of what's, what are uh, me- individual medical savings accounts. So, okay. so if, if you are um, g- getting a paycheck, you're paying into, for example, Medicare and Social Security and those kind of tax based programs in Singapore that money is going into like an IRA and, and in like a 401k for, for us. They also have retirement savings, but um, 
So people have a fund, their own fund, that they use for a substantial portion of their healthcare spending. So they're very, very clear on who is paying for their healthcare. It's them, like quite a bit. Um, and so you have these two, I'll just stick with these two examples, uh, high performing systems with good outcomes, you know, much lower costs than we have, and a very clear, very central and very explicit role for consumers. Uh, there is no group insurance unless you're an expat. Um, and that's a very small, a very small feature of those systems. So you have individuals driving their coverage and care financial decisions. And, you know, not surprisingly, they, they know what to do. You know, at the time I went, people were like, oh, can, can, you know, this many millions of Americans actually buy their own health insurance? I'm like, I think they can because, you know, here's an example of a country, Australia, that's not so dissimilar to us. Um, and they do it there. Same number of people, you know, they have a much smaller population. But anyway, so um, I thought, let me see what are they doing and what is the impact? And I think the biggest impact is that the, the citizens and residents of those countries are very, very aware uh, that healthcare spending is a shared response and access to healthcare, it's a shared responsibility. So 100% of the people I met, 100% of the people I met in Australia in particular would ask me something like this. Um, so Obamacare, it's a big deal there. Why? Like, <laughs> what's the big yeah. fuss about? It doesn't even solve your whole problem. Like, we took an incremental step to cover a portion of our uninsured and the people in, you know, in Australia just looked at me like you represent this horribly cruel and callous place that you've left still 20 million or whatever it is, like millions of people uncovered and you're having a big to do about it. Like you, you're having a big fuss, political fuss over something that doesn't even solve your whole problem. Like, why they couldn't they just thought like we believe in individual responsibility as well but we also care for our people how come you don't and 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 that was a very strong uh theme that i heard yeah i think we as americans i mean we all know this obviously but as americans we like to think we're the best at you know at everything but this is one of those areas where i mean we are good at some things i don't i don't you know like COVID vaccine, right? That obviously Germany played a role in that too. But like we did a lot of great stuff there, but but there are so many other pieces of this where we just totally fail our patients and our, our citizens. I mean, across the board. Um, yeah. That, yeah, and and I remember, sorry, like in New Zealand, I remember talking to some folks who they were like, they did not understand what medical bankruptcy is. Like they literally made me explain it to them. Like, well, how does that work? Uh, like they don't, it's almost like they didn't have words for it because that would just not, that could not happen in New Zealand. That would never happen in a place like New Zealand. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, one of the most heart wrenching things working as an advocate is we're trying to help families avoid having to do that. And voice said in a perfect world, we wouldn't need advocates and build negotiators to help people reduce those costs because it just it shouldn't be something that happens and i think as a system we've we've failed 
our, our consumers in that way. So yeah, that is, it's mind blowing and also encouraging, I think, to hear that like in New Zealand, they don't even have a concept of that. And it's like, okay, now how do we get there? And obviously it's a long, long road ahead, but hopefully something we can achieve one day. Um, one of the questions I did want to ask, so you were with the Aspen Institute Health Innovators as a fellow, really curious, um, and what was that experience like for you? What did you learn from that? Yeah, and it's still ongoing. Um, so we were, my group of fellows was interrupted by COVID. You might have heard of it. <laughs> uh, so we met, we met in person once uh, as a whole group in October of 2019. And we were supposed to meet four times uh, in over 18 months. And so they've, you know, we'll, we'll, it will continue um, as, it, as it becomes safe to reconvene. Um, but basically what the Aspen Institute Health Innovators Solo Program does is it identifies health care leaders from around the, around the country, but also really from every uh, sector within healthcare. You know, we're invited to reflect on ourselves as leaders and as specifically healthcare leaders. And we're actually charged with uh, launching a venture of some sort that moves you know, moves health, U.S. healthcare forward in some way. And I'm working on patient advocacy, actually. Oh, great. And how do we, um, how do we almost, like, democratize insider status? Like, again, to your, I think Hayden said, like, we shouldn't need insight. You shouldn't need to be an insider. In fact, I wrote an article um, about a, a report, a European study that showed um Transparency International considers leveraging insider relationships or, or contacts to be a form of corruption. And here it's quite the norm. And you wish you had, if, you know, if you don't have contacts inside healthcare, you certainly wish you had them. Uh, but because I am a healthcare insider, I get calls all the time from people. What should I do? How, how, which health insurance should I pick? Or how should I deal with this bill? Or can you help me get in to see a doctor, you know, a specific doctor? How do I even find the right doctor? And so that idea that people are um, kind of so left on their own, you know, that regular Americans who are not connected to the healthcare industry, and sometimes even people who are, are so vulnerable and so kind of exposed uh, to feeling helpless or overwhelmed or just in the dark. That's something I'm trying to figure out. How can we bring that insider status out to more people? Um, so the idea of Aspen is really um, to, to kind of think about ourselves and the impact we want to have on the world and healthcare specifically, but also, um, you know, to think, to actually take action, excuse me, to, you know, take action and to be as ambitious as possible to make healthcare better for more people. Man, wow. that's admirable. That's so fascinating. Yeah, it's so interesting. And you you bring up such a good point. I like when I, I mean, I my bachelor's is basically a gen, very general healthcare degree and they didn't cover anything about insurance or shopping for plans or how to use your coverage. But it's like, even at a college level, like that's a basic life skill that you have to have as an American is how do you navigate the healthcare system? Because it's inevitable that you're gonna 
have to use it. And it's almost something that, gosh, that should be part of like a high school life skills class for seniors who are about to graduate because yeah. not everyone goes to college. Um, and there's such a gap in that knowledge with within America. Yeah. And it's another idea. Um, and I've thought about that too, too. Like how do we increase healthcare literacy in young people, but also in, I mean, honestly, it's not just young people who need it. Uh, the ages of most people who come talk to me or ask for help are at least middle-aged, let's say, and, and they might be extremely educated and successful in their field, but um, just kind of at a loss with healthcare. So that's actually part of it. What I'm working on is how do we educate and empower people? One problem with young people, because I've got teenagers, they're like, mom, healthcare is so boring. I'm like, oh no, I know that, yeah. but you need to know how to do this. You know, you yeah. still need, so is uh, mortgage and insurance, uh, you know, like car insurance and your driver's permit, but you still need to learn those things. So a life skill. Well, when you're healthier, you're younger, you're like, I'm healthy. I don't need to worry about that. Right. That's never going to affect me. And then as you get older, you're like, oh wait, I, this is affecting me. Um, man, well, Deb, you're awesome. This was a great conversation. I think we're all big fans of yours now. Um, we already were, but even more so. Um, I, I, I know we're at the end of our time, uh, but I did want to say a couple things. So the, your, your book is The Healthcare Consumer's Manifesto. Um, I know it's on your website, I think. Is it debgordon.com? Is that right? Debgordon.com? Yep. Okay, perfect. And so definitely mm-hmm. uh, just want to make sure that's out there, You know, a, a resource to, to, to check out. And then I know you also mentioned you write for Forbes. So I wanted to just, just um, kind of ask you, it, what, which of those places are the best one for listeners to connect with you and kind of follow your work? Sure. Um, I'm, I write all the time for Forbes. So if you're interested in these topics, I cover anything that kind of touches on how consumers interact with the healthcare system. So you can find me on Forbes dot com as Deb Gordon. You can also find me on Twitter at Gordon Deb. And I love to connect with people and hear people's experiences and feedback and ideas. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm following you. So if you're not following Deb, follow her. Uh, and we'll definitely be uh, following along as you, you write and share and uh, share all that you've learned. And I'm, I'm also really interested about the Aspen Institute uh, initiative you're, you're running with. I know Hayden is too. Um, so yeah, with that, just again, Thank you so much for joining us. Love the conversation. We really appreciate it. It's been it's been a blast. Thanks so much. And that's a wrap on today's episode of the Point Health Podcast. It was so much fun to speak with Deb Gordon, author of the Healthcare Consumers Manifesto. Uh, she really is a passionate healthcare executive whose determination to make a change in this crazy industry is inspiring. I love all that she's doing. Uh, I know Hayden and I were fascinated by her work and left the conversation as huge Deb fans. If she's got a fan club, uh, sign us up. Hayden even made the comment that she wants to be Deb when she grows up, which is kind of awesome uh, and says a lot about you, Deb. Thanks to Deb for joining us today and sharing her knowledge on healthcare consumerism. I learned a ton. I hope you did as well. Uh, And as always, I learn a ton from these conversations because we are lucky to have such great guests. We can't wait to share more conversations with other upcoming health experts as we continue to build this company we call Point Health. Be sure to subscribe now so you get a heads up when future episodes drop. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.